Why did the hippie drown at sea? I don't know. Why did the hippie drown at sea? Because he was too far out, man. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's the Lovecraft Show. My name's Mr. Xditch. And I'm Marion. Hello, Jamie. Hi. So, so I just want to come out with it straight away. Have you got cake? I have got cake. I have a coffee cake. Oh, that's so... Oh, I'm so jealous. Why have you got cake? Well, my son is home from university, and when he's home, I kind of I don't amp up the baking a bit. And he is is so I made a coffee cake. It's my daughter's favourite as well. And I use camp coffee, which if nobody else has ever discovered camp coffee, it's liquid coffee. It's right. really quite amazing. As opposed to hang ever. on, as opposed to what the solid coffee that the rest of us drink. <laughs> No, but you know, like it's a sort of coffee coffee extract in a a bottle, yeah, as opposed to granules or um, grounds. And it really works, works really well in a cake. But what I've been making actually is flapjacks. And I was going to mention this to you because I know that you are a bit of a flapjack aficionado. I've got a fondness for them, that's for sure. I used to have a really, not really, I used to have quite a rock and roll past, I like to think. I've been around the block, ladies and gentlemen. I've done stuff. But it's quite funny that in this day and age, um, the most, if you want, for want of a phrase, the most stoned I seem to get lately is when I have flapjacks because you're like, mmm, butter and sugar. You're just like, oh, I'm very feeling very groovy right now. Yeah, I like a bit of flapjacks. What's your secret? I do. Well, I found this brilliant recipe by a lady called Martha Collinson. And she does this, I think it was a recipe that came out during lockdown. Um which was like sort of store cupboard flapjacks, which has oats and cornflakes oh. and and demerara sugar. And for some reason, it's just the best flapjack ever. Demerara is interesting, right? Because a lot of the time you end up like golden castor or whatever, isn't it? Most of the time people are just... But demerara well, is darker, isn't it? Well, it just gives a sort of, sort of little, I don't know, sort of caramelly sort of edgy. It's really, really great recipe. And it's a free recipe. You can look it up on... Uh, oh, I'll put it in the show notes, shall I? Yeah. I like to cousin. I like to experiment when I'm making flapjacks. I use a Rukmini Ayat recipe that was in the back of the roasting tin. Possibly my favourite cookbook of all time. Possibly. Use that one a lot. Um, and that's a fairly standard recipe. But I, I quite like date and walnut because we have dates floating around and walnuts around. I like to chop them up and put them in there. I do... I'm interested in cornflakes. That's in, would you ever do like Rice Krispies? Well, you could. I don't know how it would go, but I mean, I think because it's a, a store cupboard recipe, you could probably sub in anything. Um, Have you ever done I, really experimental? Uh, experimental flapjack. Yeah. Uh, well, we had raisins in this week. I think I would. I would. I would. <laughs> I would uh, I'm a yeah, steady. I am a fan of the great pecan nut, right. so I would. I could do a bit of a maple pecan, but not or, like a sort of peanut butter and jam flapjack or anything like that. No, far. but I'm 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 open to all those things. In my family, though, they're a bit sort of like don't tinker with the original. But I love to tinker. First of all, shout out to Sierra Leroy because now I'm thinking about pretzels in my flapjacks, based on her cooking season when two episode, t- whichever. Which which season was that? Kira Leroy, most amazing artist, and she put crisps in her cookies. I think that's come up before. She was amazing. I can't remember which episode she was. Season one, episode 17. I've got immediate recall of all of these things. 
Please go and listen to Kira Leroy because you just will love her talk of cookies and crisps, which made Jamie very excited. I remember you were thrilled, weren't you? I was very excited by that. We but we have a bit of a conflict in my house because my wife don't call her Mrs. X Stitch. That's how I like to refer to her in my email newsletter. Um, she's quite traditional, so she would much prefer a well-made bog standard OT flapjack. Whereas me, I'm like, no, let's put some cranberries in it or some stuff or other like that. It's the same with sausages. Now she's veggie now, so fortunately this is no longer an issue. But she's like, she likes a good, you know, made by a local butcher pork sausage, no messing about. Whereas I'm just like, hey, this one's a bit like chorizo, or this one's a bit like, you know, Italian chicken sausage. Like I'm experimental, but she's very traditional in her outlook. I think it's one well, of the secrets of our long-lasting relationship. Vive la difference. <laughs> well, uh, we have a tradition in our family of making tiffin, sort of mm. one of those chocolatey biscuity things. And I'm always sort of like, oh, let's let's put some let's put some fruit in. Let's my cousin who invented, well, sort of semi-invented this particular tiffin recipe has just this phrase don't fruit it and she always impl- she always mm. sort of gives me that sort of telling off don't fruit it marion what's her name kathy kathy tiffin i heard that was kathy her name tiffin. Wasn't she the yeah. inventor of tiffin uh, actually so we, we could call her cathcart let's not call her cathcart cathcart tiffin let's call her that yeah, <laughs> yeah i fancy sure. tiffin have you ever had 15s like no. they're like the northern irish they're called 15s they kind of got Rich tea biscuits, chocolate, marshmallows, and condensed milk, or something. They're like, the, and, and I think it's like you would have fifteen of it, so like fifteen rich tea biscuits, fifteen somethings of chocolate, or whatever you know. And it's kind of like you mix it all together, you wrap it in cling film, you f- kind of chill it in the fridge, and then you cut slices of it. But crikey, like Mikey, you know, condensed milk, <laughs> chocolate, marshmallows. You have one of those, and you're like buzzing for about a week. Right. I'm on those. I need the recipes. May so roll them I in promise. Coconut. We we will put the recipes and our favourite inspiration for flapjacks because craft is all about snacks. Yeah. Let's be honest. You may remember um, we had Francis Quinn in episode one, season three. So you know we've done baking in the past. If anybody's got any great tray bake recipes they'd like to share, what's the email address? It's show at lovecrafts.com. Please share your baking ideas. We mm. love them. I need an excuse to make more flapjacks. And if I do it because the the listeners have asked, I'm doing this for the people, he says, yeah. licking you the You won't spoon. get told off then. Yeah, you won't get told off then. I won't research. Right, let's talk about today's show. Who have we got on? We have the most incredible woman. I, She's very well known under the sort of title of Toft, which is the company that she runs. Um, Toft was sort of synonymous with alpacas and lately, in the last few years, a selection of books that will blow your head off if you like crocheting amigurumi type toys and creatures. She's written, I don't know how many books. Um, 11 in English. 11 in English. They've been translated. I, I was looking earlier. Everybody's Kerry Lord, by the way. Kerry Lord. Uh, I was looking. I, I was, was, I was getting research. to that. Sorry. Yeah, I jumped a gun there, didn't I? Uh, I was researching and looking through her book list. And then I was like, her books are in like Spanish. I was well jealous. Imagine when you get your books translated. You know, you're getting somewhere with that. I think you will enjoy this episode so much because... Kerry's passion for crochet and fibre and, you know, bringing crochet to the people. And it is so 
inspiring. She's a really contagiously passionate person. And I think this is going to be one of our favourite episodes, I reckon. Yeah, she took four alpacas and built an empire out of it. Long story short. Enjoy. We'll see you on the other side, people. Enjoy. Well, hello, Kerry Lord. Very excited to have you here with us on the Love Grass Show. Um, I know that you and Jamie have known each other since the dawn of time, but I've only seen you from a distance or waved or sort of like done that thing where you sort of embarrassedly just shuffle up to your stand at a show and go, oh, hello, I'm Marion from Lovecrafts. And you go, oh, hello. And then you're very busy serving somebody else with something else. So we haven't ever had a proper chat, but it's, I'm very excited because I have all the books and we've always been really big fans of Toft at Lovecrafts. And actually, Jamie, I guess I've just got to relay this story to Kerry of my very first ever encounter with Toft was at Unravel. And for anybody that's listening um, outside the UK, Unravel is a really, really cool um, yarn show or sort of you know, craft show, which is in the UK. Farnham. And Farnham, Malt- Farnham Maltings is where it is. Maltings. And uh, I was with my friend Louise, and we were—we didn't have a lot of money. This is quite a few years ago now, like really, probably very early beginnings, maybe even the second unravel or something like that, years ago. And we were trying—you know that thing when you go to a show and you've got a certain amount of money to spend, and you're thinking, right, I'm going to eke my way round all these things and decide what I'm going to buy. Anyway, in the grand hall bit at the bottom, there was Toft, and they had these things called the bulb bags. And it was like this kit that had this incredible felted bag with a huge wooden button on the front. And honestly, I had never seen anything so beautiful in all my days. So we we went around the whole show and neither one of us could stop talking about the bulb bag. (laughs) And then, so we decided, we sort of sat in the cafe and had a confab and we decided that we would have to go and buy the bulb bag kit because we just didn't want anything else. And so we bought it and then it sort of took us down into this great obsession with felting for years, knitting and felting. And I cannot tell you how many of those giant buttons I bought. So many. That's such a good story because it is, I think it probably was a really big turning point for Toft and me was that bag. And so many customers that have come to Toft, I guess in the last 10 years, don't re- don't remember that bit like it's not a product that we actually did bring it back for our 15th birthday a couple of years ago but it just it disappeared from our kind of catalogue for a while but so many people like you do well I know how many we sold we sold a lot of them so it was a really big product that broke out and it's actually not very present in our recent collection so yeah it's a really good story it means that that would have been me on that stand for definite um oh, wow. in the great hall I mean, it was just a breathtakingly beautiful bag. And the thing I think that was exciting about it was that nothing was like that. There was nothing like it on the market. Never seen anything like it before. Uh, There was one other lady doing felting, I remember, but it was just such an incredible kit. And the buttons, the buttons, and you could buy the buttons in like walnut or dark. Yeah, in wood types. And that's what was so sad, actually, when we brought them back two years ago, is the fact that we couldn't do that anymore. Because at the time, um, I had Albert, who, he was one, he was one man in his shed, um, who lived like 10 minutes down the road from here. 
and his hobby was sourcing different woods and then making buttons for me out of them. Like his hobby was the sourcing of the wood. He did obviously get paid for making the buttons. Um, but he, he loved the challenge of me being like, make them as different as possible because it felt like that's what he loved is to make them all different. But it did make you want to buy 10 rather than one. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah whenever you saw them. And I mean, these are, we're talking about very big buttons here, aren't we? They were giant. Oh, yeah. I was going to actually, no, I haven't got one behind me, but I've still got a few that I use as coasters scattered around the house, the original ones. Absolutely stunning. So that was our first, uh, in, my first introduction to Tofts. And it wasn't that far later down the line when I was, and, and I was working for Love Cross, which was Love Knitting at the time. I think, maybe even a bit later than that, when we first got Toft Yarn on the Lovecraft site, or Love Knitting as it was, and I was just beside myself. It was so exciting. Because there was, like, the same thing again, there was nothing like that. I mean, you, at the time, you, and I, we want to ask you all about the alpacas and all about the beginnings of Toft, but there just wasn't anything like that. Nobody had seen these sort of, like, really gorgeous yarns, alpaca yarns so how did it begin what can you tell us to give us a potted story of toft uh so my parents um had alpacas uh and have had alpacas for 25 years 26 years so i grew up like i remember going to first look at alpacas with my parents when they were looking at buying them the story that goes back prior to that which isn't completely relevant but people will often find amusing is my dad is actually a musical theatre director and so moved to where we are which is commutable to London but kind of rural and bought a house that had a bit of a field attached but didn't really know what to do with this field and that's how they ended up with alpacas is it wasn't that we come from a farming background or anything like that they came at it very much from a hobbyist background of his job he spent hours and hours building big creative things and then it disappeared uh, and there was nothing really to show for, for it. So what he wanted was um, a definite grounding hobby where you feed them, they grow, <laughs> you shear them and, it was, um, and they're physically there and they're a, a, a stock thing you can count that you're growing as a business. Um, so they started as a hobby with four alpacas, which we had as children. Um, but by the time I came back from university, so at 21, at which point they'd had them a long time, they'd grown to a herd of about 100 alpacas. <gasps> wow. Not, not all bred. Like, it became, it became a thing. They travelled the world doing it too. Like, I guess it was a thing that they did together. So they bought animals from Australia. They went out to South America and they bought them off the Altiplano. And they focused on this hobby that was kind of becoming a business, um, growing it but their business was in selling uh, genetics in terms of they are a stud farm they still are a stud farm and they sell alpacas to new people that want alpacas but you have to shear an alpaca every year regardless of whether you want to do something with its fleece or not so if you're focused in on the genetics and breeding more and more alpacas come more and more fleece gets cut off and if you don't have a purpose for that, then it just piles up in a shed forever. Um, and so where I finished university with, in English literature, not related to textiles or anything like that, and was tasked with selling that fight, as in literally get rid of this, as in can't this make this go away from our sheds. Um, so that's where it all started, really, my journey, was to try and find somebody to buy that fleece. Now, there was nobody that was remotely interested in buying that fleece. Um, and obviously, I went right the way through the formal wool marketing boards and learned all about um, sheep and everything like that into a totally different world. 
um, realised no one wanted it as fleece, so spun the first yarn, which arguably was like string, because obviously I was not a knitter or a crafter and had no, and just had to kind of persuade people to work with alpaca that didn't want to. And by people, I mean really old men is the actual reality of it, is every single person I came across was a man close to retirement that I was trying to persuade to do something totally new and different. And uh, I had to just take their advice on the way to do it and what it would produce. So it was really, really expensive string that I made in the early days. And we actually (laughs) used it as string until about a year ago, it lasted that long. As in that yarn was so bad that rather than sell it ever as a yarn, I was like, we'll just tie labels on <laughs> with this forevermore. <laughs> and so if you ever purchased like a Toff scarf from us in the early days when we did ready to wear, all of those price tags will, would have been attached on with Toft string, uh, which was made from our <laughs> first fleeces. Um, but then I guess the journey just, I, I've always not been too much of a planner. I've really gone naturally and responded to customers. I've always been really customer facing. So I've always done all the shows myself and taken back customer feedback and reaction and the business and the product has evolved because of that so I could knit really early on um I learned to knit uh, one woman taught me to knit um an amazing lady um who I probably owe a lot to um because she very much taught me without a pattern which I think is quite key is she didn't teach me um so here's a pattern make this she taught me the building blocks uh, that then allowed me to design really basic designs but with building blocks um so yeah i think i definitely owe her a lot um and then we sold ready to wear as i just mentioned for the first probably three years of the company so the bull bags that you mentioned far before we ever sold them as a kit because it was a scary idea the idea of telling people to shrink things in their washing machine we commercially shrunk well semi-commercially shrunk them in washing machines here so i ran a team of knitters which at their height there was probably about 25 people knitting from home um not all women actually there was a couple of guys that knitted from home i used to drive the yarn to them um there was a price based on average hours taken to knit a piece and then i paid back we brought the things in I took them through to the end and then I went out and sold them so in the early days it was ready to wear then all of a sudden people became interested in knitting and that's probably sitting at about 15 years ago so all of a sudden rather than buying the hat people were starting to ask the question of but can you teach me to be able to make this hat I want to make it myself and so that's when we took the path into craft but it didn't start from craft it went into craft and kits evolved then uh, so then then I did knitting kits for a while. And then obviously I learned to crochet uh, 10 years ago. And that then changed obviously everything um, for Toft and for me, because that's when Edward's Menagerie came along. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like when I, I was a knitter before I was a crocheter. And uh, I mean, I love knitting. It's probably my first love. But when you are a knitter and you're used to sort of the constraints of knitting and the things that you can knit, I mean, and things have improved in terms of, you know, you don't need to knit socks on four or five needles now you can use I mean, a lot of people really still love doing that but knitting shapes knitting uh, uh, you know something as convoluted as a toy or a, you know it was it was pretty pretty fiddly and then you learn to crochet and you realize that this whole world opens up where you can actually crochet any shape uh, totally organically from going you can go in any direction anytime whenever you like it's quite incredibly liberating 
for a knitter, I think. It's just, crochets have always known this, but it is quite liberating, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And when you think back, again, you mentioning the bull bag, that shape is actually a shape that I've taken right the way through with me. That shape is like an animal's stomach. Uh, and that was the, that knitted, so you did a square. And actually, when you start to think about how I've ended up and my, I'm known for this definite shape of it having a tummy. It's a pear-shaped body that has a tummy, whether it's a yeah. doll, whether it's a monster, whether it's a flower. Um, but actually, so, so does that bag. Has a very similar shape. But yes, you're right, to, to knit it, they'd be so complicated the patterns um that you there's no way you could teach a beginner to do it you'd have to have a few years under your belt before you moved on to it whereas I think the most exciting thing for me is the fact that with one of those early Edwards Menagerie patterns like the elephant or the bunny you can give me a beginner that's never even held a ball of yarn before and in under an hour they they can have everything they need to be able to confidently make it and that's re- that was really exciting and continues to be really exciting for us because we can constantly grow more crocheters rather than relying upon um finding people who already do it we target people who can't do it and teach them how to do it quickly yeah and it is it is a quick i know that jamie he's he's we always trying to get him to crochet <laughs> we're trying to persuade him trying to teach never, him to knit and crochet never. the dark side for you jamie but <laughs> this is the thing about it it's incredibly accessible crochet and it's much much faster i'll be honest as i was doing my research uh i came across i want to say he's called louis the robot i was like ah i found my crochet dude because let's face it I'm not sure there's a species of anything on the planet that you haven't turned into a sort of crocheted being by now. You, the menagerie has got what, like nine thousand different creations in it, or something. Yeah, so, how did it? St- how did you decide? How did? What, how was the the inspiration for making the animals? Where it, where it started? Right at the beginning. So really genuine again. So I was nine months pregnant, and by nine months, I mean to my due date. And so I stopped working at Toft. I was like, my, it is my due date, probably should stop coming to work. <laughs> so I didn't actually live at the site at the time. So I did live um, like a good half an hour's drive away. And so I stayed at home and probably, I would imagine in that first morning, cleaned the house top to bottom, uh, did some DIY, uh, painted some stuff and then was like, what, what, do, what do I do now? Uh, what am I supposed to do? Uh, baby's not coming. I'm not allowed to work. And so I watched a YouTube video that taught me what I now know is the double crochet stitch, but what I definitely did learn in American terms. So I, the first ever Edwards Menagerie patterns were in US terms because I didn't know there was two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, learned this building block stitch and then I made an elephant that day. Uh, before I went to sleep that night, I'd made the elephant start to finish. So like I say with the bag and I think the shape was probably very much there for me and in me and I knew what I wanted to make I just didn't have the right tool to be able to do it and then the second I had it it was addictive from day one so elephant day one bunny day two zebra day three and I I, my son Edward which is why the book ultimately took his name was um 14 days late and I had made 14 animals um and was still making the rhinoceros (laughs) at the point at which I was induced uh so it became really addictive from the very beginning because I think the I was so chuffed with myself that I'd finally learned to cro- this dark side of things called crochet, where I was like, I finally got this. I don't need to learn anything else. I've just got this double crochet stitch. I'm good with that for a while. Um, and it became really addictive from day one, going back to the same arms and the same legs, because it meant that 
I had the right amount of chunk of challenge thinking about the head, which is original. But actually then I could really do that relaxing part of crafting where you're just going round and round and round and round and not really having to think. And I think that's what's what means that they're still so popular now um, with beginners and with advanced crocheters is it's the right level of really easy and then you have to concentrate for a little bit and it's a nice balance so it becomes really mindful. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that is it. Bang on, isn't it? There are you, You've got you know legs to do and a bit of body to do in, in those sort of ways where you can relax and then it you need just that enough, don't you you do it's a bit like knitting. so you don't you need, put people off you, you know, need you need a, doing it. you need a pearl row sometimes you know when you're knitting and you're doing something that's quite a convoluted pattern you need a bit of blank in between so that's good that that makes them accessible and also i think what's so exciting about them is that people often they'll they'll make one and they'll think, I can't believe I just made that. You know, you've made a creature, you've made an animal, made it, and, and it really looks like an animal or whatever. But I mean, you've just gone through birds, really complicated birds. And again, you, you couldn't knit those. It would take you forever. To yeah, it would. And they'd be even more fiddly. Like the birds are more fiddly than the animals by their very nature, because they obviously have not many stitches as you run down those toes. But that's that's different again, then I think. What's lovely about the collections now, as I look back upon them, is people find one that really speaks to them. So I meet customers all the time that just make birds. And they're like, don't talk to me about that. I just make birds. And I'm like, yeah. okay. And then other people that are like, oh, no, I'm not interested in any of that, any of that doll thing. No, I make monsters. And I'm like, okay. And yeah. it's really... It's been really interesting for me now that there's so many more collections that people like find their thing and they're like, you know what? I really like going back to the same thing with a bit of a variation on that. That's what I do. Um, And especially as so many of them are made as gifts for people, it obviously means that it's a nice, easy way of making gifts quickly um, that people absolutely love because you can personalise them. Absolutely. And also, I mean, I have a friend who has, um, I can't, um, this is awful of me not to remember the name of this dog. It's a Pooley, I think is the name of this dog, actually. And it's like, it's got sort of, it, like dreadlocks. It's sort of like a great big ball of dog that's covered in all these crazy dreadlocks. And I can remember her saying to me, I have never seen, like, a, 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 you know, there's no toys, there's no dolls, there's no nothing. Can you please make me one? Because... I can't, and so I think uh, that with the dogs with his, it's just so great to be able to make a replica of something that somebody else loves. You know, like, and if it's birds, you know, to make a bird or or an exotic bird or a, something that you just wouldn't see. Uh, yeah, if people love, to be yeah, they do. With the dogs in particular, I mean, because we do do Crufts Dog Show and events like that, and that's the thing that you—that's how we create new crocheters. Is we stand there and someone comes along, and honestly, if you'd asked them that morning over breakfast, like what yarn, crochet, knit, they'll have been like, I don't even know what you're talking about. They walk onto that stand and they see their breed and the idea that they can pick the yarn colours in their yeah. breed, and that you give them a tip on. Yeah, well, don't worry. You just need to do that pouring cream and then swap to swap to a camel and you, that's got your dog's cream pouring. And all of a sudden, they're a crocheter overnight. Oh, yeah. And they're the yeah. most... Um, when you've got that motivation to learn to craft because you've got a fixed object that you already love at the end of it, they're the people that then go go and go and go. And I see them... Like, we've done crufts now for... Well, apart from the COVID years, for probably six years. And 
it's amazing because the people that are the least likely crafters have become the most passionate crafters. Then they're getting out shawls and they're like, I've crocheted a shawl. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, well, that's that's exciting. (laughs) And and also because they're a small item, doesn't take too long. Yeah. And it's like a gateway thing. Yes, it opens up the great world world of crafting crafting and crocheting crocheting yarn. yarn Doesn't it? That's the thing. They're the ideal thing. We had a really fantastic designer on the show a couple of episodes ago called Anna Nikopirovich. She's amazing uh, crocheter. And she does Tunisian crochet and also very addictive, let me tell you. And she was saying she only likes designing small things mm-hmm. she says i don't want to make great big garments i don't want something that's going to take me weeks on end i want something i can turn around really quickly and she says and all her sort, sort of following, following they all love mittens and hats yeah. and shawls and you know and it's the same thing with all your gorgeous menagerie all the animals all the everything uh, apart from the fact that she's done things like metamorphosis installations where she's got like eight foot high crocheted versions of the things so. oh yeah yes do you, i remember seeing um like a uh what's it called when you do like um time lapse when you were like, oh, okay. of making the giant bunny and things i mean how how why what you do did you suddenly th- where are they now as well so we find homes for them so generally we're talking about uh for, to give everyone an idea they're usually about eight foot high if you stood them up so if it's an animal in my classic standard form it's about eight foot high the butterflies were five meters wide they were by far the biggest thing <laughs> that we'd ever undertaken but they were flat um is all i will say whereas obviously when we do a 3d eight foot one it's a lot more stitches because you can look at it from all angles. The nice thing about the butterflies is it was one side and then a lot of staples uh, to attach it onto the board. Um, but the way that we approach it is um, I will usually sketch the shape onto um, big pieces of wallpaper lining. So we've got a shape. And we do, for the standard form ones, we do now have a giant, giant standard form. So there is some kind of pattern. But generally speaking, it's totally, again, really liberating because it's freestyled. So if it's someone that's not feeling as confident within the team, I'll obviously do the shaping rows and then they'll just go round and round and round and round for three hours, not having to think and just doing a double crochet (laughs) and then hand it over again for a bit of decreasing. And they're always great to do for events because it's obviously lovely for customers to be able to get pictures with them. It's lovely for us as a team to actually do something together. Um, It's also good to teach some team members to crochet that um, that'll be the first thing that a lot of people that don't necessarily come to us as crocheters take part in to take it through to the end. And where they go is um, to various destinations of our stockists. So Sophia the Flamingo was one of the first ones we ever did. She lives in Vegas in a yarn shop, which was obviously fitting for her. (laughs) And Geraldine the Duck has just gone off to New Zealand. Um, She's going to live in Wellington in a big shop that's about to open there. Um, The butterflies are about to go into Oxford Street, um, into one of our stockists there. So we just... I store them for a while in our office and then I gradually rehome them just through a casual chat. Like sometimes... The, the giant monkeys that we did went to um, Birmingham Children's Hospital. Um, so they went over there for something. So I just, a conversation will arise and I'll be like, you wouldn't perchance like, an, like a giant, <laughs> a giant one of those? <laughs> You've got any wall space? Got anyone that would, this would make laugh? And so then we'll just gift them out and they'll go off to new homes with little plaques that just say when they were made and who they were made by. 
I think this is the thing that I love the most is like, so my relationship with Kerry has mostly been born from neighborhood of like being at the same shows at the same time. And obviously I ain't no crocheter, so I wouldn't really appreciate the sophistication, but it's just been funny on the days where you set things up and I'm busy doing my thing and you see Kerry's stall and then there'd be a frantic thing and then there'd be like a load of dangly animals and then sometimes you could tell that things are really stressful because this thing's going on and you're like, I don't know what's going on there. And you'd come back like two hours later having done your own thing and yeah, there'd be a massive thing here and there'd be an installation over there or the floor would be covered with crochet things or the walls or something and it was always, to me, it was just like, you're taking this thing the crochet thing that people can do and you've gone yeah i'm just going to build a world everybody and just every single time and it was so cool to see because you wouldn't know what was coming and then it'd just be like oh my god kerry's had like a fever dream and she's put it all out there and made this crochet installation it was so good and i have to say if you if you do go to a show and you see kerry and the toft you won't believe your eyes because there really is every every animal under the sun dangling i mean it is a it's a thing of great beauty it is and I think when you talk about a type of crafter when you say that it's like a small project crafter or someone like that I don't like making the same thing twice and I'm not I'm absolutely willing to admit that which is why I guess we don't ever stand still is I personally want to make something different so we constantly move forwards um, and we do go very much with wherever I want to it's not that we sit, sit down strategically and say we've made all the animals now better find something else to make. It's really organic and natural um, that we, like the, the latest book that's just come out is, is Alexandra's Garden, it's Flowers, which a lot of people, um, again, it's another one that really divides people, but has brought in a lot of new people again, gardeners, that, that weren't yeah. crocheters, but love their gardens. Yeah. Um, and have come in from a completely different perspective because they want something to be able to do in the winter when they're not gardening, but it wasn't forced. It isn't that I sit down and, and look for areas that we can expand into um, like that at all. I genuinely, during that first lockdown, found gardening, um, made a daffodil. People like the daffodil. Then I made some more flowers and I planted more flowers. Then I was like, I've got a crazy idea. Let's actually grow the flowers for the book. Um, and as a result, we've made the book that genuinely is in my garden. Um, and that's that's quite ex- it's a totally different kind of creative project to just shooting animals on a on a backdrop in a studio setup. And I just, I'm just looking at it. So for anybody who's going to have a look at this book, I've got to say in the first place, Kerry, it's a really beautiful book. Mm, I mean, it's, it's, really a, nice it's a very very tactile book it's it's a really nice hardcover book which i think is really nice um the photography is beautiful and everything in it i really is you know everything goes round by round like all the other patterns so it's very easy to follow um lots of handy tips you know all your favorite plants are in there but i love i just love the hyacinths in the little just i mean so there are lots of skills in this book in terms of petal shapes and things, yeah, they are trans- very transferable. So if you, ha- you know, if you haven't made flowers and things before, there's an awful lot in this book that you can transfer to other things. So if you want, you can make all these lovely flowers, but then you'll think, do you know what? I've made something else, and I think I'd like a bit of a, a f- something on it, or an applique, or something, or a petal, or a flower, or a. There's an awful lot in here that you can translate to other things, and I think that gives such longevity to a pattern book if you can apply it to other things too. So I love it. 
in that respect. There's so many gorgeous bits and bobs in here that teach you, you know, expand your crochet skills. Yeah, yeah. it is much more varied than the other books. And I think that's probably the thing that I often say is totally special about Edward's Menagerie and the first, very first book is the fact that I truly was a beginner writing a book. And that does not happen because obviously what normally happens is you have your career, you build up a reputation, you become an expert, and then you get asked to write a book. Edward's Menagerie broke that mould totally because I genuinely was what I would regard as a beginner at the point at which I was putting together a book for beginners. And I think that's really special about it because it is absolutely within his within its box as a beginner book because I didn't have the skills to necessarily forget what a beginner needs to know mm. when they're first starting out. Whereas a decade on, which is where we are now with um, Alexandra's Garden, there's so many more different stitches in there and there's still beginner patterns and they're all flagged so that a beginner can see this is an easy one, I should start here. But it's much more about playing with, yeah, different stitches, um, surface um, additions of crochet. So it's a 3D shape and then putting a lot more onto that 3D shape. Whereas the original Edward's Menagerie is about shape and learning to create shape with that stitch. Yeah. And so it's it's really sort of a an evolution of crochet. And I have to say that I think crochet in that time, in that 10 years, crochet itself has evolved really profoundly where people, you know, back in the... And if you're listening and you're not a crocheter... Uh, you know, back in the sort of 70s and beyond, crochet was really, really limited to granny squares, uh, doilies for tables, uh, and probably a few toys, but it was quite a limited thing. And the yarn, obviously, that we had available to us in those days was not very nice, and so the stitches were quite bulky, and so we, we, we were sort of stuck with one level of crochet. And then as the sort of expertise of people and designers over all of this time, just like you have, you take sort of these new modern yarns that are finer and better and more, um, you know, more elastic and more just easier to crochet. So the stitches are smaller, the stitches can be more subtle. And now people are crocheting all the things that used to be the province of knitting, cables, colour work, toys all of these things and I think so because crochet has evolved so profoundly over that time that's and you have been part of that evolution bringing these new stitches uh, you know new techniques to toys effectively over time using you know with your vision thinking well I want to do a leaf this way and I'm going to just do it this way or I want a petal that sits that way or I'm going to do some surface crochet I think it's just a great expression of how crochet's evolved in that time and how you've been part of that. So, I mean, it is, it's extraordinary, I think, um, from a crafter's point of view, if you look at the whole series. I don't think it could have happened without video. I think that's probably a massive thing is back, that's what's so different now is learning from video means that I can absolutely break the rule box. Well, not, I've never been one that worries about the rule box. Like I always admit that I've never really crocheted from anybody else's patterns. I haven't. I learned the building blocks and then went for it. Um, so, so long as I've got video so that no matter what that idea is, I can explain to other people, this is, this is how to do it. Forget what you might have done somewhere else. This, this is what I mean by this. Then it means that we can go absolutely anywhere and really push the boundaries rather than feel like, well, that's how you do 
that. And so I'll do it that way. I've never worried about that. I've gone with the messing around until I get it and then thinking, I've got no idea what this is called. We'll think of a name for this and I'll do a video so that everyone knows what I mean. So I'm thinking about, you know, the introduction of video. And so, I mean, I have to do a lot of video work, you do a lot of video work, and, and this is how it's evolved, as you say. It's really great to be able to teach people new ways. How did you feel about video at first and being on video and being on camera and then take us forward to create and craft because that's another big tv thing yeah so i i think for me i hid behind the brand that was toff for a really really long time and edwards menagerie changed that too because until edwards menagerie no one knew who kerry lord was my name wasn't necessarily on anything at all my name didn't appear it was just a toff product um, then obviously with Edwards Menagerie, so 10 years ago, Kerry Lord suddenly got attached to a book and people started to ask, but, but who is Kerry Lord? Well, they often think that Edward wrote the book as well. So I created all manner of strange things there where, but people were really shocked and still are shocked today that when they're on the Toff stand, that I'm Kerry, that I'm Kerry Lord, and that, but you're that person that's always worked on this stand, and I'm like, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're like, but, but you served me, and I was like, yeah, I know, and I couldn't crochet then either. Um, that there's almost like a disbelief that they expected Toft as a mythical thing to employ Kerry Lord or find Kerry Lord from somewhere, and then that Kerry Lord took it to a new level. The idea that it was me all along, and I was always there. And I genuinely learned to crochet and found a thing, like a new, a new way of, I guess, expressing creativity that I had. I just didn't have the tools to do it. Sometimes still really blows people's minds, especially if they have been a customer for a really, really long time and just never put two and two together. Yeah. So I hid for ages because I didn't need to be Kerry Lord. I was just toffed and that was all fine. And I hid for ages behind that. And then I think it really was COVID that was the, was the proper turning point that even when I was doing Create and Craft and I have done that for eight years, when you do Create and Craft, um, certainly um, in previous create and craft years um to in the last couple of years when it's a little bit different you, there was really strict rules about how you would operate and you didn't talk to camera it was very much about talking to your presenter that was with you you were explaining what you were doing to them you weren't talking to camera even though I'd done create and craft for years before covid I had never ever ever talked directly to camera and covid hit and I had to just I had to just embrace it and it's really awkward like when I watched some of those early videos but I knew that during those first couple of weeks of when we went into lockdown the obviously the quantity of people that were suddenly wanting to learn to crochet just skyrocketed yeah. and we couldn't teach workshops because I couldn't teach them face to face they couldn't come and see us because we obviously closed our shop on the spot all the shows were gone and I was like that thing and our videos until then had been quite um, planned, as in it very much, much been me having a plan, me recording it for ages, then it getting edited and then it going onto YouTube. At that point, all of that had to go out the window. And I was like, they need a video for this? Okay, get my iPhone. And just had to accept that the lighting wasn't great and that I did things wrong sometimes. And I just left that in, but explained, I've done that wrong, sorry. I'll pull that back. I'll do that again. And a new, I think a new style of, um, of videos totally emerged from us, which made people 
realised that it was me for the first time. Um, that I think until then, because I never, even on our old videos, I didn't ever do camera facing. Uh, wasn't a thing. I didn't think people needed that. Why would they need to see me talking? Because they were looking at my hands. Um, so it all had to change on the dot um, immediately as soon as we went into that first lockdown. And I'm so grateful it did because I now feel confident talking to a camera um, in a way that I hadn't done prior to that at all. Um, we've now got hundreds of videos and I don't worry about doing things live and, and doing it wrong. I don't have to prep. I have to just have confidence that, well, I can crochet and it is my pattern. So hit me. And even now we're back at workshops and um, we do a lot of big workshops still. So at Kew Gardens, I do 100 people in each season as a workshop. And then we're doing wow. 180 people in June in one go um, at Kew Gardens. In one go? At one go. So we're in the Temperate House, which is the oldest glass house in the world. Um, and we're literally in amongst the foliage as we crochet um, a plant. So yeah, 180 people at that one. And I've just had to, I guess, build my confidence enough to set, to be able to do, I do open questions at the end, as in people can literally stand up and be like the armadillo. <laughs> and I have to go, give me one second, refer to the pattern and then be like, okay, let's go. And I'll, I'll demo it. But without, I guess, uh, COVID forcing me to have to do those lives unprepped, to help people, I didn't realise that I had that in me, the ability mm. to be able to to say in a very honest way, obviously I don't know that off the top of my head. Like, obviously I don't. It's, I have hundreds of patterns. But just give me a second to go and look it up. And of course, I will show you how to do that technique. And so it's just changed everything. And I do live questions and answers on um, Instagram where it's exactly that. People post their questions in. And then like the next day, I'll just bash through everything in a big long live it's a bit jumbled if you are ever looking for something but it means that a person gets a great response to their absolutely niche question of mm. can you just show me the ear on this and it'll be like yes of course I can show you the ear on that and I wouldn't necessarily need a long pre-prepped video for that but then that person yeah gets the answer and can make it and I think uh, I really like video for that too. I've totally, yeah, completely embraced that and enjoy now being able to talk to people and them realising for the first time, some people still, that it is it is me behind the books. And yeah, it has been me all along. You just sometimes say toft and I like to use we rather than I, but yeah, has always been yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and let me ask you um, about the yarn because so at the beginning, obviously there was a fair old amount of alpaca yarn um, and now that there's there's now lots of wool. It is. So where where did that sort of cross over? Because I mean, I remember we used to talk a lot about alpaca yarn in the in the beginning of uh, of love knitting and uh, love crafts because there are so many fantastic properties in alpaca yarn that don't happen in wool. And you know, we talk about drape and we talk about allergies and we talk about all sorts of different things. And um, and now there are other people doing, obviously, alpaca yarns all over the world. And it's sort of, it's grown in popularity. But back then, there wasn't, like you say, there wasn't a lot of it. Um, and now you're, you're doing more wool. So what, what, how was the journey in terms of that and where, where you source stuff and dye stuff? And So it's absolutely on hitting a ceiling on capacity. So it started with alpaca yarn and it started originally with just our alpaca's yarn. And to give you an idea of how much we've grown. So this year we have spun two years worth of our fleeces. So about 250 worth of fleeces. 
Um, and when we put that on sale, I have every uh, confidence that it will probably break our website and probably in under two hours, it will disappear. And that's, I guess, puts it kind of in context that originally, probably for those first two years, probably the first year of trading, I would have traded on less than half of that the whole year um, in order to turn that into hats and then and then sell them. And then so the I actually bought fleeces from people and alpaca owners and farmers right the way across the UK as we grew. And so probably four, five years in, I was purchasing fleeces from hundreds of different farms across the UK and was probably spending three days fleece sorting, four days selling that product. Three of a week, every week, <laughs> three days fleece sorting, four days selling that product. And that was like those really early days as we started to move towards crafting. And what was, I guess, the turning point, the, one of the first turning points is you sell less hats than you do hat kits because they're three times as expensive. So you use three times as much yarn to take the same amount of money if you sell the balls of yarn rather than the hats. And so the the capacity moved up then when we started to move into craft kits rather than ready to wear that we physically needed more fleeces. Then I physically needed more time because there wasn't enough hours in the day to sort that much fiber and then turn it into yarn. And so my conclusion was that basically there wasn't enough alpaca fleece in the UK to sustain the way that the business was going. Even if we purchased all of the alpaca fleece from every single animal in the whole of the UK, we still wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't have enough for where we are now. And mm. that's also because just because it's called an alpaca doesn't mean it's any good. So a lot of yeah. people in the UK have, animal, have alpacas that they love and they're really great and they're pets, but you really would not want to even stand on their fleece as a rug, let alone yeah. wear it. And so that's, I guess, what I was up against a lot in those early days was really, really hard conversations with alpaca owners that had spent their life savings on buying some alpacas that had to get told, yeah, when your animal was was first born, its fleece was lovely. And then maybe for the first two years, I would have been able to pay you this for its fleece. But now it's eight. It re- like there really is nothing to be done with this fleece. I c- there's no process that can turn this good. It's an older animal and it it could become a carpet if you can find somebody to to spin it into a carpet, but that's not my that's not my thing. I'm looking for the top end of alpaca to make sure that I maintain my reputation as as you buy a ball of toft yarn and you can wear it as a scarf and you can wear it as a hat, not just as a bag. Um, which also is where those bags came from in the early days too was because in reality, the bags were made from the older animals' fleeces because you weren't wearing it against your sensitive skin. You, were, you wanted it to be more hard-wearing. Yeah. yeah. So we're, I ran out of pa- alpaca, basically, is the long and short of it. So then I investigated British um, fine fleeces. So I started with um, Shetland and Blueface Leicester. And then I ran out of that in reality, really. It all becomes quite sketchy in terms of... I, it's quite hard, the Blueface Leicester... Um, there seems to be a lot more things called blue face Leicester volume wise than necessarily adds up to how many animals are in the UK. And you, I hit the limit on really, really fine fiber. Cause that's the thing in the UK is there's lots of sheep, lots and lots of sheep, lots of wool available, but not necessarily the top in terms yeah. of micron softness quality. But because I'd come from alpaca and the top of alpaca, there was no way I was going to compromise 
back down in terms of the quality. So um, I did spin probably five or six batches um, of British fibre wool until I was like, well, we seem to have hit that ceiling again. Um, so actually, we then moved about 10 years ago to the first Falklands Merinos batches, which is what ours now is. Um, although that, like it, in the same way, has a limit, like it's not a limitless resource so we do still do alpaca is the long and short of that um and actually in reality as much alpaca as we did in the early days it's just we've grown so much as a business commercially around that that it's a very small part now of what we do compared to how it was when we just did that Mm. sorry that was such a long answer but actually no one I've never really explained that to anyone before um but it was again really organic it's not that I ever sat down with a business plan and said this is where I want to be this is what I need it very much is a feeling the fact that you're going to run out and that's why um this will actually change next year and I presume that the publisher will let me tell you that but we're revisiting Edward's Menagerie next year because it's 10 years so there's going to be a new version of Edward's Menagerie that comes out next year um, which is the 10 year update from how it was because in that first Edward's Menagerie one of the really weird quirks when I now look back at it is the fact that it doesn't tell you what colour to use it tells you light or medium and dark but the reason that is is because I had no guarantee of (laughs) colour Yeah. in our yarn at that point because it obviously wasn't commercially spun or dyed like that and so when we just had alpaca yarn sometimes I had lots of colors and sometimes I had no colors at all um so yeah, yeah that's why it's so vague in that early book is because I didn't want to tell people you need camel and then not have that in stock for a year yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, but that now obviously has changed. Other than the COVID years, we have actually held every single toff colour in stock now with it not going out of stock. Um, There was a few sketchy moments uh, during 2020, but I think that was the same for everyone. Wow. And when you did, when you were doing Alexandra's Garden um, and all of these gorgeous flowers, and so you'd introduced some shades here that you hadn't had before, how much fun was that? Actually getting this, yeah. Yeah, so much fun. Because obviously, so for the first like eight years of toft it was just natural color so that was my spectrum i was in the grays and the browns and there was nothing else like hard rule <laughs> really couldn't have imagined the amount of colors that we now have then the birds introduced the first six um and it was really hard for me to write a list of probably 80 birds and then try and um boil them down into just six colors because i guess that's the uniqueness probably of me being quite um commercially minded and running the business but also being in charge of the creativity is that I I wouldn't ever allow myself to use 36 colours if I didn't think we could spin 36 colours. And I have to be in charge of spinning the 36 colours. So it's quite different to, I guess, writing a book where you're allowed to go and choose your colours from someone and they're already there and you choose your colours. Or like I have, I have to design with so many more commercial limits to that. So six colours came in with birds. And then throughout the COVID years, six more bright colours came on top of that, which were like um, a red. We didn't have a red at all until then. So Santa existed in green (laughs) for a while before we did him in red. Um, But I always go really steady in terms of developing new colours and want to know that I've got enough to justify spinning a big batch like that because we still spin fibre dye and I don't spin 
yarn, uh, don't um, yarn dye. So what? that's why our colours are so rich. So all of our colours, even our bright colours, are dyed as fibre. And then it's spun up like candy floss, which is the opposite to the far cheaper way of doing it, which is where you spin a ton of ecru yarn and then you dye it to the colour that you want at the end. But mm. that means I have to commit to a lot of it. So if I'm deciding I've got a new colour that I want to introduce, I need to know it isn't just to sell one product, that I've got enough in my creative tanks for it to be able to feed into a whole line of products so that I can justify spinning as much of it. Um, because I can't ever just make 10 kilos of something. I have to make a ton. Because <laughs> you did apprenticeships in mills, didn't you? When you were like in the early outset and stuff. It's, like, it's fascinating to me that you've got such an intricate understanding of like the entire ecosystem. Yeah, and I think that sometimes shocks people too. Um, especially when I have been out to try and talk to new mills or people commercially that don't necessarily have that is yeah I know how to sort fiber and I understand how not I won't say all machinery by any means but I have a reasonable understanding of how that yarn is created to have made decisions that got me here and I think it does sometimes take people off off guard that might not necessarily understand that and I'll be like oh yeah you could use this yarn I'm like I definitely would not want to use that yarn like why I understand the speck enough to make it exactly how I want it to be. And I'm also not afraid of rejecting it if it's wrong. Like if we spun something wrong and I wasn't happy with the product, I wouldn't put that out to our customers. Like we say with the string, is there's been plenty of mistakes in the last 17 years where I sit on a product and I'm like, well, I'm not giving that to the customer. So leave that there until we work out what either what we can do with it or we find a good home for it because there's no way I'm going to put my name to something unless I am absolutely happy that I would want to own that myself as a crafter. It's also interesting to me that you've got because you've got the fundamental building blocks of making yarn and then the way you were taught crochet you were just taught in the building blocks whereas other people may have come along and learnt by following a designer learnt by just buying the fleece straight out of the shops or whatever and never have that like the fundamentals and it feels to me like like when I look at your portfolio of creations and you've got the Imaginarium and you've got all these like mix and match uh, like creations, it's almost like you've just got the blocks and then you kind of configure them as you see fit. And it's like you've just got this foundation that's really strong and you just go, well, this is this is where I'm at. And it's just really well put together. I think it's because it's so organic, like it really is so organic that it's the yarn that inspired the design work. And then the design work continues to inspire the yarn. Like going back to what you said about the new colours for flowers is basically I tried to put a book together without the introduction of new colours. Again, especially in COVID times thinking, well, <laughs> can we even make enough green, let alone anything else to sustain a flower book? Um, but realised I needed six pastels like really early on. But then would always, I would never just pluck a colour out of thin air without comparing that colour to all the other colours that have come before. So then once I decided I wanted pastels, choosing exactly the right shade of pink that would look good with the two previous pinks, but also be okay with brown, is, mm. is then the challenge to go back to that natural palette and be like, I need to make sure that all these new colours work with these old colours. And I've never, I've also never really discontinued. So when we go forward and we expand it, it's not that I kind of tear down and leave that behind because lots of people's favourite colour might be one of those old colours. So I, I take those building blocks with me too and I guess keep building on top with the foundation rather than tearing it out and starting again. So 
that strength, yeah, the strength of the natural colours and early on, I think is probably what makes it feel so cohesive as a whole as a whole collection. I think I think actually people underestimate just how hard it is to get colour right. It, it is incredibly hard um, because you, I mean we've all seen we've all seen yarn ranges where you think. Oh, that's a lovely yarn. I don't like any of the colours in it. You can look at a mammoth, you know, all kinds of commercial brands and look at them and think, oh, I love this yarn, but I just wouldn't use any of that, those 25 shades or whatever. They just miss for you. And that's why it is so hard to pick the right colours, the right shades of the right colours. And for me, because of the fact that the majority of the yarns that we're now manufacturing are being used for toys, um, mm. not for things to wear it would be very easy to fall down the trap of moving towards colors that were for that forgetting the fact that we still have a really established following of knitters and we still do a quarterly seasonal collection that are things to wear so it's also bearing in mind that yeah the pastel shade for that might be great but you still need to want to wear that color um and so yeah it, i mean they take it does take a lot of hand dyeing and then tweaking and then testing and hand dyeing but obviously we are a, a team now, like I'm very much not just doing that that solo at all anymore, and um, that we are a team of full-time 12 people in order to make Toft happen. And I certainly couldn't have it all happen without the amount of people that are there absolutely grafting on all of that stuff every single day. Ooh. Now, the other thing I've just... I'm st- there are this, this thing, like, when, as soon as I look <laughs> at the website and I'm just like, I'm so excited about all these different things. As Jamie predicted, I'm very overexcited about all this. This is fine. Bargello. We have this conversation about Bargello. I was looking at the Bargello kits and I just want them all. Um, Although Jamie was, I was saying, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. And he was telling me off yesterday and saying, well, of course you can. You just have to try harder about Bargello. (laughs) Because he's really kind like that. Um, But isn't it interesting? So you've now got embroidery, you know, and and all of these things. Where did that come from? Because I know... Obviously, Jamie with his super stitching background. But where did all of this come from? Suddenly the embroidery. So it came from um, embroidering on crochet. So I did a bird for um, an issue of one of our magazines last year that was inspired by William Morris. And so it's um, like a it looks like a jacquard bird. It's got stages of colour changes. But then I couldn't get the effect that I wanted with colour changes at all. And so I embroidered the colour changing on the top as lines. And then once you start something like that, you open a totally different door where you're like, well, well, I was like, that was, I'm really happy with that. It's really effective. And then I had to like check myself and be like, don't do that on everything. <laughs> don't, get la- <laughs> don't get lazy. You still do need to colour change sometimes. Um, and so I discovered that. And in order to feel confident in talking about embroidery I obviously had to learn the actual stitches rather than probably you'll probably find the very first bird I made was literally just me like blagging wraps of yarn then when we do the test bird I was like we actually need to look up like what this is called so that I can explain not just stick it in and bring it round what 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 do you call this um and so then I ended up meandering down a slight route at which point I was like what what is this what is this cross stitch that involves wool called like and come from a total point of I guess genuine interest of sometimes I see this kind of tapestry stuff that's done with wool that looks like ours <laughs> and then go down that route a little bit well I'm well if I can do this maybe I'll enjoy doing this and then we discovered the fabric and then sometimes it'll take just a little bit of a spark for somebody else in the team who wants to take it forward 
So I very much fell in love with the idea of the freehand embroidery a lot more. And I've taken that one to the end. But it's actually one of my team members that had done some cross-stitch in her past. He was like, I actually really like this. If you want me to test this, I'll, I'll run with it. And I'm always very much like the go for it. Like, here you go. Take some days. Here's all our yarn. <laughs> Here's the mesh that I think works um and see see what you come up with and have a play and then together once you get your head once we get our heads back together it just developed and we really enjoyed the tiles um the coasters were huge which was how we launched it because at the time we were researching for knitting and crochet patterns for tiles so it kind of came it just pollinated out of the other craft as these things do if you've got a bunch of creative people in one place and you're all starting to research and you've got time to go with what you like doing, then you end up meandering along to a different path. Long may it last. Oh, yeah. Jamie, you just on the subject of Bargello, it's, it's, um, it's a great entry point, do you think, for stitching? Yeah, I, I mean, I really like it because it's so groovy. And actually, when I think, you know, the way you speak about using natural colours and those kind of things, like it lends itself in that kind of retro chic department. But also you get these really groovy effects for what is fundamentally a really simple stitch and it's just that process of just keeping track of the direction you go in and and you're away really i've got a lot of time for it i'd do some now i'm gonna go and check your kits out <laughs> i love the kits and i think it's really really clever to think of coasters because they're small things that you can practice on and get you know and have a set and you just know that people are going to be like wow where did you get those and you go ah oh, i made them yeah and the big thing too so the the bags we do a bag that's basically a prepped there's a zip built into a bag frame um so it's like an empty bag that also very much came from people talking about their ends because obviously there's people making hundreds and hundreds of animals out there and i I don't design to leap to use all of your yarn for your ball so you're very often ending up with five grams of this and 10 grams of that and bargello is brilliant for that because obviously you are using really small quantities of different colors and so it's been really exciting to see our customers basically use their scraps from one hobby and create an interest in another one same with the embroidery uses very little wool and you can use your leftovers from one hobby on the other I have to say for our listeners now we will be putting because oh, I know you'll want them all the links to all <laughs> of these fantastic ideas and kits um, into the show notes and so you'll see those um, and yeah absolutely give them a whirl because they are gorgeous I'm a little bit concerned because obviously Kerry's gone from like small beginnings to I love this bit where there must have been a day going there isn't enough alpacas in the world <laughs> so and now the thing that's making me nervous now is she's going embroidery there isn't enough embroidery in the world <laughs> I'm, just like, I, I'm just so it's so amazing because for me toft's always been there and it's such an empire and it's so amazing you know and you've got your workspace outside rugby and you've got all your different fingers in all these pies like it's just so it's just always been so cool to see what you're doing and that it's still going and that you're still keeping it weird and that you're still making clothes and on and on like i don't know i'm tired just thinking about all the stuff that you get up to it's amazing but do you know what i love what i love about all the things that you've said about it is that the fundamental sort of thing that runs through it apart from your sort of passion is creativity you know you're just following this beautiful creative road and letting your like you say it's all very organic you're letting your creativity your your, your creativity and your team's creativity just flow through 
And for anybody out there listening who thinks that being artistic and being creative is, you know, not a proper job, they are so wrong, as we always say, you know, this is so important because you're facilitating other people being creative. It's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that is really true. And I, um, we are staunchly independent. We remain independent. Um, I, I'm, I don't have to be accountable to anybody apart from myself, um, which obviously I'm sure can be a nightmare in some respects, but also means that I do have full, full freedom to, for us to be independent and to go where I feel like it. And obviously, so long as the team are happy to come with me and I'm obviously some of my team now have been with me for a really long time um really really long time I mean I think Emma's been with me like 13 14 years so really from the very beginning of the route um we just yeah we do just go we work they we do work hard but there's no two ways about that um we do have to work hard to do what we do but appreciate the fact that we are all creative people and we are allowed to be really creative even down to the stickers that go on the parcels we make every single decision like that um from the start to the end is we have a sticker printer we have so many printers now here <laughs> it's like that covid changed everything on that front because we obviously used to do that all out of house and that was a real turning for point for us where i was like well why on earth do why don't we have the sticker printer so we invested in so much stuff that meant we could be even more creative because now we can just print stickers like 10 minutes after we have an idea for a sticker whereas previously we would have had to have made the sticker then design the sticker, then send the sticker off to print and then wait for the sticker to come back in. We can literally just have an idea and, and print a sticker. Like I know we're talking about, but that's, but that is what makes it really exciting is because creativity is addictive like that. So obviously once, once you start and you realise you've got that freedom, everybody's head buzzes to being like, oh, we don't have to do it like that. Why don't we try it like this? Um, and that's, that's exciting. And that's what keeps me going too. I think I would be very bored if someone told me I had to just package Emma the bunny in the same box every day forevermore. Um, it's exciting for me to to go where we, where we want to as well. Now, I realise that you've literally got a book that's just come out, Alexandra's Garden Flowers. But what else have you got coming up? Because you've already mentioned you've got the 10-year Edwin Menagerie. I think that there's another one of these, isn't there? So the most dangerous thing is to ask me what the date is because I get my head very confused at the moment because we're planning like into 2025, 2026. Um, so this is Alexandra's Garden Flowers that came out last week and it's hot on the heels is Alexandra's Garden Vegetables, which is coming out in the autumn. So that's 30 vegetable patterns. And just to give context, because we talked a lot about Edward and Edward's Menagerie, that was my son. Alexandra is my daughter. Uh, and ever since she was born six years ago, I've thought, what do I one day do for her? That means at some point she doesn't I mean, learn to it read. It would be awkward if she didn't have yeah. her own range of books, right? Yeah. So she has Alexandra's garden and she truly has grown, again, the real garden with me through lockdown. We've gone from a very weedy weed patch with no love to actually a really lovely garden and a veg patch that we grow things in. In fact, our whole house is covered in seedlings right now as we're growing vegetables. Um, so that comes out in the autumn. And then, yeah, it is the 10-year anniversary of Edward's Menagerie next year. Um, Edward obviously looks very different to how he does in the original pictures that were taken for that book. Um, so we will be revisiting Edward's Menagerie next year as well. Um, but we've got so many, with the vegetables, we've got such good plans for the shows this year too. Like the butterflies last year it's going to be very good this year Ooh, can't wait you've ever wondered that. what a nine meter high crocheted brussels sprout looks like ladies and gentlemen <laughs> terrifying terrifying yeah 
that's going to be a big treat for anyone who's coming to visit the show. So that's really good. And this is a daft question, but if people want to find you on the internet, other than just, you know, shouting your name in the world, telling them, where can people find you? Um, so on all the normal social media channels, um, although I apologise for our TikTok presence, like it's one, one step too far for me on top of everything else right now. At the moment, it's just my hands moving very, very fast. Um, but if you want to see me sewing up things in record time, that's where to get them. Um, so all the normal social media channels, and just by searching Toft, probably more than Kerry Lord. <laughs> Is there anything else we need to talk about? I was going to do a quiz, but then I was like, no, I'm not going to do a quiz because it's a quiz that you'll be... You've you've got the quiz. I thought you were going to do the quiz. It's not crap. It'd be great. He does great quizzes. No, but I don't think... At first, I was like, this could be a good quiz. And then I was like, no, wait a minute. Kerry's parents started an alpaca farm. So an alpaca-based quiz, she's just going to be like, yeah, this is the answer to that question. This is the answer to that question. This is the answer to that question. So, I mean, we can try it and see his pants so the quiz i've called alpaca attack alpaca attack attack um true or false there are no wild alpacas true or false oh i think that must be false surely there are some wild alpacas no it's true they're domesticated species because the uh the alpaca is a domestic version of the vicuna there you go and are there any wild vicuna Yes, in South there America. No on al- al- three, three vicunas walked into a bar <laughs> and the bartender said, you're alpacas now. And the opposite <laughs> is the guanaco. So there's a llama is a domesticated species as well. And, and the biggest one is a, a wild guanaco and the llama is a domesticated guanaco. And they're all camelids. Yeah, camelids, South American camelids. And they're also uh, even-toed ungulates. You have to cut their toenails. <laughs> next, next. Next question. What is a male alpaca called? Robert. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure there's I a mean, straightforward answer to this. I'm not sure there's a straightforward answer to that. I'll be interested to see. Like, we would co- always call them studs. This one apparently is called a macho. Probably in South America, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not in my okay. British alpaca terms, but probably absolutely, truly, yes. That Macho stud. I know, I know <laughs> don't, that. Don't search for macho studs on the internet, ladies and gentlemen. Safe search on, please. <laughs> uh, what is a female alpaca called? By that Elsie. 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 Elsie would be good. Uh, it's called a chembra. What is a baby alpaca called? A creer, surely. It is. <gasps> oh, that's, I'm doing well on this quiz. I never, did, well. I never, I never ever do well on quizzes, <laughs> Kerry. Ever. Um, and then, an anim- an alpaca that turns one year old is no longer a creer. It is a yearling. No, that's a horse. Or weanling. I don't know. I don't know. I probably won't know this term either. A tui. I've never heard Ooh. that before, but I'll try and sell that one. That's. I like to pretend I'm the alpaca expert in the room just now um alpacas and llamas can crossbreed what are their offspring called i don't know the answer oh crikey is that sort of a bit like a mule and a and you know how horses and donkeys can be yeah oh i don't know or the english and the welsh they say oh steady on (laughs) that's dodgy Uh, don't you care for them i'll edit that out that's fine uh apparently they're called juarizo or juarizo there you go. Uh, there are two types of alpaca. Can you name them both? I know one of the people in the room can. 
Um, two kinds of alpaca. Is there one of the Suri alpaca, and the other one is, is a, the other one is a, a something else alpaca. The wakaya. A yeah. Wakaya. Now, so, before you know, you were saying about um, people who have bought alpacas before, but the fleece isn't right. Is that because those are Suris? No, Suris are much rarer in the UK. So about four percent of the population are Suris. Um, and we did. We used to have Surrey's. We don't actually anymore, but we used to have Surrey's. It's much, much harder to manufacture their fibre because it's much longer. Um, and actually, people tend to leave it on for two years. So they're the ones that look beautiful when they're in full fleece because they've got lovely long fleece. But it's a nightmare to manufacture because it's basically too long um, for any of the machinery to put it through. But when it's just alpacas that aren't good alpacas, some of that will be crossbreeding with llamas. So... Even basically when they started exporting alpacas commercially out of South America, they gave us all the rubbish. I don't blame them. And so people bought a novelty animal that wasn't very good, but without necessarily an understanding of that. So all the like really complex genetic breeding they'd done for quality of fleece in South America, the animals that actually made it across here to the UK early on weren't those ones. They were the ones that were probably alarm across with an alpaca. <laughs> Um, so it's only really been since the industry's got more aware and there's obviously a lot more movement of alpacas around the world and the, the alpaca population is much higher over here that people go back to South America to understand the top end genetics that then the good quality alpacas have come in. But when my parents first bought them, there probably was less than 100 alpacas in the whole of the UK and they would have been in zoos. Like, And the ones in zoos are just for you to look at. Like They're not, they're not for fibre or for any commercial farming reason other than the novelty of oh it's, it's an alpaca it's a push me pull you um, yeah because um my quiz falls apart at this point because all of us really got is a couple of other interesting points of note but we'll say that every <laughs> everyone was a winner in alpaca tech so congratulations everybody Yay. um no apparently um it's both flame and water resistant their fleece flame resistant so because it doesn't have lanolin so the sheep's fleece is obviously really in as a raw fleece is really greasy, whereas alpaca is really um, oil free. Um, so really, really low levels of lamin. I presume it's related to that. It's an absence of oil. I think as yeah. well, because I mean, sheep fleece is also fire retardant and um, they, they smolder, but they don't catch on fire. And it doesn't and melt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the thing about alpaca fleece and fibre is that because the fibres are sort of long... That's why uh, that it makes for such great knitted garments and things because there's brilliant drape. But then if you mix that with a bit of wool, which is crimpy, then you end up with something that will hold its shape and drape. So these, they all have their sort of their beautiful qualities that you can mix them together or or separate them out. You know, just to, that's the beauty of, of all these gorgeous animal fibres, that they all have their own properties. And of course, they're incredibly well, they're incredibly warm. And, and also, so, just, so if you don't, if you have an, an allergy to lanolin, then you could wear alpaca. If you have ir a sort of very sensitive skin, whereas all these sort of fibres have little tiny fibres coming off them that you might not necessarily see. If you just have sensitive skin and you might find any animal fibre uncomfortable to wear just because of all the little tiny prickly bits on the fibre that you can't see. But generally speaking, a lot of people can wear alpaca fibre that have trouble with wool fibre. So it's, it's, it's a lovely thing. Apparently, it's the second strongest animal fibre after mohair. Which is rabbits, right? Goats. Goat. Is it? 
Oh, what am I thinking of? Um, you're thinking of Angora. Oh. Which is an Angora rabbit. Yeah. I must admit, I was it's wondering how those rabbits got words. to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some really hardy rabbits you've got. Angora fibre is really short. Yes, I was interested in it. As in under strength test. Mm. And then the other, the other random fact is apparently alpacas predominantly give birth in the morning, which is a sort of DNA legacy from when they used to be in a lot of hotter climates and so it was much more palatable. But aren't they just so clever? Yeah, they are. So and I can cute. vouch for that. That really is true, that if we've not had a career by by kind of one o'clock, you know that you're not really going to have one that day. Or if you are going to have one, it's going to have been a really troublesome one as in the mother will have had a trouble with that labour that's taken it past that point. So usually in the summer months, we and we're, our first careers will be due next week, we've got about 50 due, that you'll go out in the morning at 7.30, 8 o'clock and they'll be, they'll be in the field already born. Oh my goodness, and how exciting is that? I mean, obviously there must be traumas around. Still, exci- still exciting though, even though we've obviously it's seen so, so many. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is I think still they're quite renowned for being good at self-birthing as well. Yeah, they, they are like, at the moment, but like all animals, there's not been a lot of uh, necessarily genetic selection for big animals yet, which is probably why they didn't have any problems. But as people genetically choose animals for different um, characteristics, it will only ever get harder, I fear. Because, um, yeah, obviously people try and breed bigger animals because they have more fibre on them. I think it's because people keep making bigger crocheted alpaca sculptures. One thing naturally, <laughs> like, I'm not pointing the finger of blame anywhere or anything, but one thing needs to Kerry, I cannot tell you how fascinating this has been, this chat. Absolutely amazing. And we are in absolute awe. We love Toft. We love all the stuff you've done. And... I'm sure that anybody listening to this will be super inspired to pick up a hook and visit Toft. And yeah, I was going to say they can still visit you, right? No, they can't. I'm afraid. Oh, so actually, <laughs> during COVID, we closed and I moved on site, um, and so that's why we're doing many more events out and about. So why we do the big yeah. workshops at Natural History and Kew Gardens is because we we're now a closed a closed site. Um, just also the amount of lorries that now leave. <laughs> and come in uh change the nature of what we did a little bit um so yeah we go out and about and meet people rather than them coming to us that's it so yeah actually if you want to meet toft you have to go to places such as kew gardens and indeed the natural history museum or shows yeah and have you got any plans do you ever think you'll take toft on tour and go abroad uh yeah absolutely so i do do quite i mean pre-covid i was doing so many international shows i was in australia twice to three times a year new zealand like we our third biggest territory is australia and we've built a really big following there um i am going to um chicago in um june so i'll be going out to meet our trade stockists out there again so we're starting to get back to uh, toft yeah internationally um again from from this year onwards well, everybody, just off. keep an eye out then. Just go onto the website, keep an eye out, have a look on the Instagram, keep an eye for wherever you can, and don't forget to stock up on the books. Because there are lots That's of books, and they're all gorgeous, especially Alexandra's Garden, these lovely flowers. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's probably not... They're different conversations and questions to the kind of questions I usually get asked, so it's been a real pleasure. Amazing. I'm going to go running for my hooks now to make one of these flowers. I might go running for my hooks. I'm quite intrigued by the fact. What did she say? She said she decided to make an elephant and she made it in a day. And I'm like, 
Hang on a minute. Yes, and then and then Edward was 14 days late being born, so she made 14 animals. 14 animals. And has subsequently gone on to create 700 animals, 800 plants, all manner of uh, robot. And I mean, she's got so many monsters on her website as well. Like, it's pretty insane, the amount of uh, creation. Listeners, get yourself onto the Tough website. You will have your heads blown off. It's very exciting. You will. It's great. Well, we hope you enjoyed that show. Please do let us know what you thought. If you have the time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that will help our robot overlords share oh, the love of craft around the internet. Yeah, and we'll and we'll love you forever for we that. Will. Leave us a review, and uh, and if you'd like to tell us anything about what you think of the show or anybody that you think that we need to talk to, send us an email at show at lovecrafts dot com. Uh, that's it for this episode of the Love Show. Thanks for being here, folks. Thanks for being here, Marion. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and always a pleasure with you, Jamie. <laughs> See you on the next one. <laughs> Happy crafting, everybody. <laughs> Happy crafting. Bye. Bye.